Okay, so hello everybody. Um, probably a good idea to introduce ourselves since theoretically this is a podcast and you can't see our lovely faces, but my name is Marina um, and I am part of the English Ed cohort. I shall pass it on to one of my other group members. Hi, I'm Shelby. And I'm Kathleen. And I'm Teresa Cosgrove. Hooray! So um, today we will be discussing Make Me by Eric Toshalis for our um, Child and Adolescent Development uh, 1 class. So I have come up with a couple of questions just to help guide us through um, the podcast. And I will start out with the first question, which is how do you define learning? This really is a big one. <laughs> I suppose it's, I, I, I'm just, I'm just going to get, start throwing words out. It's um, taking in new information and adjusting your worldview based on that information. Nice. Yeah. Is that vague enough? <laughs> I think that's a pretty good start. I also was thinking about both information and skills building. So I think I would want to include at least both of those in a definition. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's, I mean, on the, the most fundamental level, it's the acquisition of knowledge. But I do think, to your point, Shelby, there is absolutely something to be said for the, the social and the emotional learning piece of it, too. Um, and, and how, uh, you know, the, the, the entire context in which all of the information is provided and absorbed and understood and engaged with, too. Very nice. So I asked this question because in chapter four, I think it's chapter four, um, it's titled, This Should Be Different. Um, Tashalas kind of talks about why or what students think of learning. Like, I think there's a very big difference between what we as educators or future ed educators or even parents for that matter think of learning and then there's how students think of learning. So that brings me to the next question. Can you all remember a time when you resisted in school or at home or with your friends? And what would have been helpful to know back then? And thinking about this through an educational standpoint and how we can kind of link that to maybe what we thought our own definition of learning was and why why we resisted was okay at that moment in time. It's another big question, but I think you guys are up for the task. Not to go first again, but I actually do have uh, a situation. We had a science teacher that I just straight up was not very good. He was not very organized. He was not engaged. He had an absolutely horrible voice to just listen to. So to begin with, nobody liked this guy, but he assigned this project to us. It was a mousetrap car. We needed to make a mousetrap car that would be a car that was powered by a mousetrap. And it need, and the way that he laid his rubric out was so vague and unclear that um, he, I think 75% of the class wound up failing because he did not define the parameters of this project well at all. And I was so angry. I was, I remade the stupid car three times 
it be trying to make make it go two meters and it wouldn't and I was like well but I almost got there so I should at least be getting a B but no it, anyway we we argued back at him we actually wound up taking it to the head of the science department and we're just like no he was wrong he was unfair he did not do this well at all we deserve better than failing grades um and we actually I don't remember what grade I wound up with but he did get a talking to and he was at least his his rubrics were better after that so so what was going on with that so or that was the heart of the issue that he didn't provide a clear rubric or um also was it like a top-down push or tell us more what was going on there it was so the way that we read the way that everybody read it was that your car needed to travel two meters and you would get an a his he thought that traveling two meters was a baseline and anything beyond that would improve your would improve your grade and also he didn't he, he was just like handed us here's a mousetrap go make a car there was no other instruction we were just supposed to figure it out so i did this on my own i did not ask for help beyond like asking my dad where's the saw but i went to school with a whole bunch of 3m engineer students and a whole bunch of other people their dads made their cars and then failed <laughs> So it wasn't just me. They, they were getting pushback from the parents. We're like, why did my my car, I mean my daughter's car not pass? So there was there was a combination going on there. But so I was I think the common the, the the problem was that the the format for the grades, the rules for the grades were not clear and he didn't actually teach us anything. He was just like here, play around and do it, which is fine. But then the grading should be a hell of a lot easier. Well, and it's interesting, interesting and it's, it's so it steps out of Tashala's a little, but I feel like if I remember correctly, didn't Stipec talk some, speak to that in some ways about how if you're evaluated strictly on the output, you're less motivated and clearly you were, right? Mm -hmm. um, you were less motivated and you were incredibly frustrated and the, the effort that you put in did not translate to the what he your instructor determined is the output and therefore you know that that for that focus exclusively on the, the performance output completely submarined your motivation and your passion and feel good for you guys for speaking up um, yes if sure. i if we're in audio you can't see me nodding my head like crazy you're nailing it right on the head it was unbelievably frustrating but yeah totally yeah. On the flip side, what do you think that the instructor, in order to understand, or at least, I suppose, get on the level of their students, which in that case included you? Ha having clear instructions from the beginning would have helped. But then the other thing, would what I think would have been extremely useful was that everybody just laid down their car and let it go. And that was it. We just it just happened. We didn't talk about like, oh, do you see what happened here? Do you, oh, do you see this, this was, this was a problem. How could that be improved? There was no um, conversation about what we made. It was just like, oh, okay, you went the, here's your car. You went this far. Next car. Let's move right along. And missing opportunities for like peer supported learning or instructor supported learning that, you know, 
probably other students, if they had made their own cars, they would have recognized like, oh, my first one was like that too. Here's what I did to make it go a little further. And that could have been really collaborative and connected and cool, but everyone yeah. was so isolated that you didn't really get any feedback or ideas from one another and you didn't get to share any of your own good ideas of what you had worked through. Absolutely. This could have been an awesome project and it was after the failings of the teacher that made it not be. Do you look, Kathleen, if you look back at that, do you look in some ways, and it's not resistance in the way that Tishalis talks about it, but do you look at the, the fact that you and some other students went above the instructor's head as perhaps in some ways expressing or acting in a resist in a resisting kind of way? Like, would that have been, would you say that was kind of your form of resistance at least? I mean, you were, again, acting out in the T'Challa's description or you know how T'Challa's describes it in his books, but yeah, you know, I mean, what are your thoughts? Would, would you view that as some sort of resistance? Oh, very, very, that was, yes, very much so. I was, um, I, I, I was absolutely a goody two-shoes student. I um, followed, followed along the lines and, you know, if I got a bad grade, I would talk to the teacher about why that was, how can I fix this? And this was, this is the only time that like I did that. And he just, he was very dismissive. It was like, well, no, you look at the, look at what I laid out, you, you fail. I'm like, and that's the only time that I've ever like not accepted mm. that, that I can remember just not accepting that. Like, no, you are wrong. And I am pushing back against you. It reminds me, I think it was in chapter seven of the Tashalis, but um, when he was talking about recreating or reformatting the hierarchy to fit your needs that were not being met. Um, I think the examples in there were a lot more about like uh, renegotiating or reestablishing like maybe certain peers as being having more authority than the teacher. But in this case, um, I think it's a similar uh, a similar action to that and that you were going to a different authority, maybe probably a greater authority in the existing hierarchy of the school. Um, and going as a collective to make the hierarchy that existed work better for you. <laughs> yeah, totally. So Kathleen has generously given us a really good example. Can the, either Shelby or Teresa give a good example? Or, yeah. well, I guess a bad example, <laughs> if you want to go there, but... Um, I had several related examples come to mind, and I think I can distill them down, because what I was really thinking about were when adults were trying to control what I was reading. That was like a very prominent component of my childhood, I feel like, because like Kathleen, I was, I would describe myself as a goody two shoes, a, a teacher's pet, a people pleaser. And I was a very eager, motivated, independent reader as a young child. And once I was in schools and in libraries, I felt like that was like, shockingly shut down. Um, there was a lot, there were a lot of rules both at my elementary school and my local library about when you were allowed to read and what you were allowed to read. Um, in my school library, you were not allowed to get anything out of your grades section, your grade level. Um, even if you had, you know, we did the online 
testing to see what our actual reading level was. And that wasn't really relevant. That didn't enable me to get books from the other categories um, besides the grade I was in. And then one very um, specific example that's coming to mind about it was actually at the local public library. There was a rule that you could own that children with library cards could only pick, uh, check out 10 books at a time. Um, and I lived in a really rural area and my family went to the library, went to the town uh, once a week. So our once a week trip to the library was already a big outing. And um, I wasn't going to be able to come more than that. I was a kid. I couldn't drive myself or walk there. And I did argue with the librarian about it. I had more than 10 books and took them up to the counter. And the librarian said, oh, you can't, you can only check out 10 books. You need to go put all these back. And I, um, as much of a people pleaser as I was, I was also very self-righteous and was like, I cannot come back here until next Wednesday. I can read these books by tomorrow. I need enough books for the entire week. Um, I was able to get more books, I think, through my mom using her adult library card, but I was, I continued to be frustrated by the injustice that I wasn't actually allowed to check out 10 books on my own. And I, looking back, am surprised, like, I don't know why any of those rules were existing or why they were being enforced in the ways that they were. I am, I'm kind of shocked by uh, the, the, your school library not being allowed to check out above your grade. That's astonishing to me. You, book kids wanna come in and wanna read, let them read anything. Yeah. It was already the school library. So in that way, they already had controlled what was available. And, you know, my school went up to sixth grade. So they had already decided everything in there was appropriate for up to 10 or 12 years old, maybe. Um, but I not mean, every kid at the school could look at all the books. Yeah, you weren't going to stumble across Fifty Shades of Grey or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> Behind the barn doors of other stuff. That, actually, <laughs> that does seem massively uh, ludicrous and mm -hmm. a, a really excellent way to curb learning and uh, motivation to read. Did your, um, well, obviously your mom w helped you with um, getting out more books. Did they, do you, did you remember if your parents ever had any pushback as well about um, those policies? Um, yeah, well, I don't recall if my parents ever like pushed back at school about like different things should be allowed she should be allowed to read whatever she wants from the library. But that was like at our house, we could read anything. And then we were going to the public library to supplement it. So I think that also was part of the way that my parents uh, treated, uh, how they didn't censor um, what I wanted to read, I think really uh, probably gave me that sense of justice of I should be able to read whatever I want. Um, and. It, it was what had made me a motivated reader to begin with. So I was glad to have that support in my family when I pushed up against the rules at school and at the library. Yeah, I'm glad you had that support too, because it'd be completely different as well if your parents happened to agree with those ludicrous policies. Mm -hmm. Teresa, do you have any moments you want to share? You know, it's it's a great question. And I think so, at least now, I know we have a few of us real followers in the in this podcast or in this group. 
Um, I, I think the most flagrant example of, that I can think of of me resisting was when I checked myself out of kindergarten um, and walked home because I was really, really angry that I was not allowed to continue working on my project. Um, the teacher said, okay, you know, it was one of those, okay, paintbrushes down, you're done. Um, and I was furious and so I left and turned up on my parents' doorstep, fortunately in a good, safe neighborhood. Um, but I think, you know, beyond that, honestly, I think more of the resistance, more, I put forth more resistance in the corporate setting than I did in the academic setting. And I think there are definitely parallels to having a boss that um, kind of mistreats you or doesn't treat you like a human being, doesn't engage you in the strategies, the paths, the work, um, and being an employee who resists against that. Uh, and there's like parallels to that between that and the, you know the teacher-student scenarios. Um, but yeah, I mean, more recently, just given the amount of time that's passed since I graduated uh, from school, uh, I'd say more of the resistance is definitely on the work side, being the you know one of the few women in management against a bunch of men. Uh, so stories for a different day, but definitely some resistance opportunities there. I'm really yeah. curious about you checking yourself out of school. Like, how did that work? What did anyone say? Did, where, did you just march out? Did I anyone, were there out. consequences? Uh, well, you know, I was a good kid and here again, you know, because I, so, and I wrote about this in my paper for Cultures and Communities, the first paper. I was the third of four kids. I came in on the heels of two others stellar performers, well-behaved kids, really strong academically. And I sort of followed suit minus that one deviation, but not, you know, honestly for us, there weren't consequences. Um, and, and, you know, in a, in a different environment, um, there absolutely could have been. Uh, the biggest thing that happened was I had to go back to school with my mom. The teacher knelt down because I was short back then and she spoke to me eye to eye, asked me why I left, why I wasn't happy. Did I want to come back for the day or did I want to just go back home? So it was pretty loosely, I'd say it was loosely handled. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I literally just packed up my boots and walked home. I think it was, you know, at the time it seemed like a great distance. It was really about three blocks. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, was, I was just livid because somebody was trying to tell me I couldn't finish something and I'm someone who when I started, clearly back then I was too, someone I wanted to start it when I wanted to finish it, but the class rules didn't allow for that. And, and so I took matters into my own hands and left. Did you express that to your teacher? Uh, I'm just wondering about like, did she tell you stop working and you marched out or did you express any resistance or ask to keep working in any other way? Yeah, it's so funny you say that. I did, I remember what I rem I remember a handful of things from that day. One was asking to continue and turning my the star ornament over and painting a line across the back to say, you know, saying I'm still working on this. See, I'm painting the back of the ornament as well. We were doing Christmas ornaments, and uh, and she said, no, you have to stop. And that's when I just I went to put something on the hook in the hallway, and I just left. <laughs> That's yeah. it. I'm out. I, I, yeah, I was. I remember. I remember storming home. I was so angry and couldn't understand why my mom was like, "Oh my gosh, why are you here? <laughs> and how did you walk out of school? Like, how? What safeguards are there now? I think in some schools, I think there are probably a lot of schools actually could still get away with that. Um, 
because we didn't have a real like a master front entrance i just walked out yeah it makes me think of um in the tashalis reading um sort of the areas of when they were talking about motivation and that time when it's like you know don't push the student too much too much they're like if, if the student's getting in a groove they don't want to be interrupted they just you know yeah, that's coming in for correction mm -hmm. it's the wrong time yeah <laughs> clearly <laughs> it was the wrong thing for you right well and what i do remember you know on, on the the upside and I, I still think about mrs burgoyne was her name and i give her so much credit because i remember her coming down to my level and having a very even, and I'm sure she was panicking, a kid had just walked out of her classroom, right? Um, and even though it is, it was a safe neighborhood, it's still, you, you just lost a five-year-old. Um, just the fact that she did come eye to eye and spoke to me very evenly, spoke to me like, she didn't speak in a kid voice. I mean, she was adult, like I was a little adult she was talking to, and I still, I respect her so much for that and for saying, do you want to come back? You know, the choice is now in your hands. What do you want to do? Um, you're not coming back into paint. You know, that that is finished. But do you want to come back and engage for the rest of the day? Or do you want to go back home with your mom and then come back tomorrow and start fresh? So I do I do respect how she handled it on the other side. Um, but it, you're, you're so correct, you know, that she interrupted the flow counter to some of what theories mm -hmm. we're learning. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really struck by how all of the stories that we shared were about that we wanted to do more and to do a good job and to figure out the figure something out. And, you know, Teresa, that project had just been part of the curriculum moments before and I wanted to read more books and Kathleen wanted to um, figure out the way to accomplish the goal as well as she could see it from the rubric right and so it really is making me think about the idea that there is always a, a reason behind the resistance. And now, you know, we're speaking about it from, of course, our own perspectives and our own experiences. But a lot of times the things that may be observed as bad behavior, yelling at a librarian or marching out of class or going to talk to the principal to complain about a teacher, like, you know, those aren't necessarily behaviors the teachers are wanting, but mm -hmm there or the librarian was wanting but there was something behind them and it's important to remember that no matter the behavior even if we can't directly see as teachers what is motivating it in the moment that there's something there a need that's being unmet um, a motivation that the student has that is important and we should be validating and valuing yeah and then it also kind of like brings to mind for me at least all three of your examples you resisted because it seemed to me at least that you were being forced out of that flow state. So I wonder if, is that the majority of why young people especially are resisting? What are your thoughts on that? I think in a lot of cases, probably. Um, I, we know that transitions during the school day are very difficult. And I think that that's probably a reason, whether it's a direct school academic activity or whether it's talking to a friend in the hallway or finishing lunch. I think those are really hard times and times when there's pushback, times when maybe students move slowly or don't follow directions because they're in the middle of something and 
they want to take care of that before they move on to the next thing. Obviously not, I don't think that's every time, but I think a lot of times it's, you don't want to be uprooted from what you're doing or thinking about. I think that's, I think you're both absolutely correct. And you think about, um, you know, a, a student may resist if that flow is interrupted because from a student standpoint, they're thinking, hey, I'm here, I'm learning, I'm engaged. And now you're telling me I need to interrupt that because you have another plan for me when I've already committed to X, Y, Z. And I think, you know, the same could easily apply to any of us, right? We're writing papers, we're in class, we're doing a number of things, even within this program. And if somebody, you know, for me, if one of my kids walks in while I'm trying to write a paper, they've just busted my flow and I'm livid. And so I think if you think about that from a student, a younger person's mind and their frame of mind, it absolutely makes sense that that would be disruptive and one cause at least for resistance. One of the biggest takeaways that I've gotten from all that we've read in Tishalis is that nothing happens in a vacuum. There's always, whether we as teachers are able to recognize the, what the cause is, there's, if there's resistance in the classroom, there's a reason. And also it's not that we can necessarily as educators fix it, but it's worth pursuing what that reason is and seeing how to make it better. Yeah, it's a great point. I was, what I was gonna say earlier is that I'm remembering correctly, I think that both Teresa and you Kathleen have little people. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you notice any patterns in their resistance and how maybe it is related to flow or is it something completely different? Um, and I think for Kathleen, especially you have youngsters, youngsters, am I right? I do. I've got a three and a half year old and a little girl whose birthday is on Friday. She'll be two. And yeah, flow and tr transitions are huge. My son particularly struggles with transitions. He doesn't want to leave the house and then he doesn't want to come home. He doesn't want to get in a bath and then he doesn't want to get out of the bath. And Yes, I like, and a lot of it is just like he's getting into his thing, he's enjoying it. And when we are just a when we're able to let him like naturally lose interest in something and move on to the next thing, it's much smoother. But life has schedules, and you know, honey, I gotta get back, you gotta go to grandma's so I can get back to get back and get on class at nine o'clock. So transitions are a huge problem <sighs> that yeah. we're working on <laughs> for us you know so lucy's nine parker's 13 for him they both they were both daycare babies so routine and structure and transition has been built into the into both of them from day one so they don't necessarily have challenges with transitions, what I've noticed with Parker is he struggles with lack of transition. So when we were in, you know, with school being online for most of this past year, he really struggled with the lack of being able to get up, leave a classroom, walk somewhere, and then go back into a classroom um, because his tradition, his uh, transition suddenly became back out of one Google classroom, go into another Google classroom. So for him, transitions are incredibly important. Um, um, and I think that like a transition then led him to resist in a different way because he just sort of shut down. But um, 
but they're both they they both need their transitions, and yeah, as I said, resist in their own different ways. Well, parenting it seems hard. So kudos to you both. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting though because now you know being and be studying education and spending more time studying people who aren't in, in a, a theory about educating and caring for and caring about people who aren't my own, I think has given me new insight into, um, into my own kids. And I'll, I'll share a story and it is about resistance. It's not necessarily flow related, although it could be. Um, Lucy, the nine-year-old, um, refused to participate in a month long um, math exercise at school over the school in February. So at the beginning of the month, the teacher said, if everybody puts in X number of hours practicing their math facts on this app, we'll have a pizza party. Um, so there you have the if then, there's your extrinsic motiva motiva motivation. And this is certainly not me um, indicting the teacher for anything because I think other she's phenomenal. But Lucy was not at all motivated by that pizza party. And Lucy was like, well, I'm not doing it. So I didn't find out until towards the end of the month that Lucy hadn't completed her, her math exercise um, or enough, she didn't rack up the hours to warrant um, participating in the pizza party. And so I said to her, you know, what's up? You know, this isn't really that hard. You do your hours, you love math. She's like, well, you know, I don't really care. And I was sort of blown away because she's a really hard watered student. Um, and then it, so she, I talked to the teacher, actually, I, did, I said to the teacher, I'm like, give her the consequences then, you know, she didn't participate, she shouldn't get the reward for it. But uh, when the teacher talked to her, she gave Lucy the option to do it the next month. And Lucy said, well, at least can I help you serve the pizza for the pizza party, which I did think was really, really cool. But it, it um, and I, you know, I guess the, the kid um, props for that, but it was just a really interesting look at like, how she resisted and refused to do it because there was something in the motivation pool that just didn't line up with her. Like clearly offering pizza doesn't mean anything to this kid. There must've been something that the intrinsic motivation wasn't there until, um, until the very end or something like that. That's a really interesting anecdote and makes me have a lot of questions about what you said that Lucy likes math and usually does you know, her other schoolwork. And it really makes me wonder about what her, usually her motivation is. Is it just that she enjoys it? Is it that she wants the teacher to like her or be proud of her? Is it that she wants to do a good job? And I'm sure you have lots of insights and thoughts about that, but really it's, it's interesting that adding an extrinsic motivation would, sounds like it took away her intrinsic motivation to just want to do math that she likes. Yeah, it is interesting. Yes, I, you know, I wondered, you know, at points, and especially reading about, you know, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation over the last several weeks, um, was it the fact that everybody else then had a motivation and she was like, well, that's not my party then, I'm not, you know, if I'm not driving it myself, I'm not interested. Is it because um, by the teacher offering that reward for the class that she just then feel like her own sort of, her own groove and flow was interrupted because her, the way she usually goes, she's very self-driven. She, you know, she lives and breathes by alarms and um, getting her work done. And, and, and she does want the teacher's um, respect, but she also respects the teacher and she she's just forever pushing herself too. So I do wonder if it was, um, you, you know, what it was, was it the, the crowd thing or 
Or what? But yeah, that the it is so interesting that the extrinsic reward had a negative impact on her intrinsic motivation until she could then control it herself the following month and have her own sort of exercise. Yeah. So is there anything else we want to say or touch on or comment on or ask questions before we wrap up this podcast? Well, you know that you uh, you raised a or a conversation does, I guess, lead to a, a nice natural conclusion in the sense that, um, you know, we've talked a bit, a little bit about resistance. We've talked about interruptive resistance to flow, resistance in general. We've talked about motivation. Um, and, you know, maybe it would be helpful as we wrap up just to think about or talk quickly about, you know, how would we, you know, if we're faced with resistance or any of the things, if we had any of the students who did what, we did back then how would we respond or what would we do what would we do differently yeah and that I forgot about that question I had put in the chat yeah um which basically says what Teresa just said but like in your future classes how would you how would you address resistance like would you follow Trishalis or would you think of other uh pedagogy leaders that might help guide your classroom management yeah, I would say Tajalas has given me a lot to think about. Um, I, 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 they're, with the, the readings that we've had and the different authors that we've studied, I think there's a general theme among several of them, you know, about encouraging and engaging students and getting past resistance and looking at resistance as a positive, not a negative. But how he talks about working with students and almost embracing and acknowledging that resistance and understanding what's underlying. It has changed my view on how I think or how I previously thought I would be in the classroom, not, not as a despot or anything like that, but um, I never thought about, oh, if a student's sort of losing it or has something going on that's massively disruptive in the classroom that I'd want to say, okay, hold on, guys, let's, let's see what's going on here and dive into it, you know, because the practices, you know, that come going to you know, 12 years Catholic school, 13 years, it was sort of like to the principal's office you go. And so my past experience, this throws my past experiences out the window. And so reading to Shalas, I now have a sense that like, it absolutely makes sense to embrace it and really want to understand what's going on rather than say, get out of here. Because anger is an emotion that says, I'm still with you. You know, if someone's coming at you angrily, there's an emotion there and there's a human connection there that I think you can still capitalize on. And, figure out it's gonna take time and certainly not sugarcoating. <laughs> I don't mean to sugarcoat how easy it would be because I think it'll be somewhat among the toughest things we do, but I think we have to embrace it. And I only hope that I'm in a school that does not um, restrict me or constrain my ability to handle challenges in the classroom. Because I know there are some schools that are just to the principal's office you go. And I hope I'm in a place where I have that autonomy over my classroom that I can encourage and capitalize on that resistance and convert it to something. Yeah, Powerful totally. Place. Thanks for sharing. I think the, um, the biggest thing for me is like being able, experiencing resistance from like I also feel like it's different experiencing resistance from one or two students or if you're feeling pushback from the entire class. And um, 
my, especially my high school experience, boy, were we on a schedule. I mean, that thing about like, okay, guys, come in, come in. We got a lot to get through today. I swear to God, I heard that three out of five days that I was in school. There was always, it was always move faster, move faster. We got to get through this. And the idea of being able, having the luxury of taking the time to check in with them and being like, okay, what's going on with you? All right, I'm, there's, I'm, I'm feeling something going on. What is it? And being able to stop and talk through that resistance would be, like I said, it, it might be, I'm, I'm hoping that it's not a luxury, but I'm almost thinking about like planning when making lesson plans and like, a, like padding things by a couple of days because to allow for flow or to allow for conversation to not be rushing to the next thing. Yeah, um, adding on to that, um, this again may be too idealistic of a view, so we'll see how it plays out. But I do believe that if you're including those relationship building moments and those check-ins with students' interests and feelings, that it's going to make it things go smoother in the other way. If you know, if you're not um, constantly, you won't feel necessarily as rushed because you won't be fighting students every step of the way to get them to do exactly what you want if you're instead taking into account what they're feeling, what they're interested in, what capacity they have that on that particular day. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely experienced that as well as a student and I'm sure that I will feel it as a teacher that need to like get on to the next thing and finish all the planned tasks or in time for this thing. Um, move on to the next. Um, but I also hope that we can build in that relationship building and that like connecting with the other humans in our classroom space. Um, and I think that that would make it smoother and easier overall. Yeah. Well, and I think there's, there's a lot to be said too on the positive side. Um, as far as support for us goes, or, you know, just looking at things and it, not in a vacuum. I mean, we won't be teaching in a vacuum, right? We'll have, we'll have our classroom, but the kids come in and they go out. And so even being out in the hall, greeting kids, saying hello to kids, making out, finding allies in the principal, the department heads, the other teachers, um, I think would also be just tremendously helpful. Just you get a sense of what's going on. And first of all, what's going on with some of the students, not to uh, negatively influence how you wanna treat them, but to give you some insight into what may happen in your classroom with certain students and how can you, as best as you can be prepared or maybe foresee some of these things happening, um, some foresee some resistance and, and maybe have a little bit of a backup plan in mind, um, just based on what you know with certain students. But again, too, I mean, just having the allies with some other in other teachers and the principal to eventually earn your own freedom to manage more of your stuff in your own classroom or in our own classrooms, I think will be tremendously helpful. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think it's super important. And I'm glad that we are having that discussion and willing to think, I guess, outside of the classroom as well, bringing in our own experiences. But yeah, so this was a great conversation. On that note, I feel like it's a perfect time to end. And we will see you in our next podcast.
Thanks for listening. Bye.